Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. From Raleigh, North Carolina. Think about that. Well, don't think about it too hard, especially if you're thinking about the bathroom. Um, there will be a couple of uh, my favorite Prince songs on this program, but it's not going to be, you know, all Prince all the time. That's being taken care of elsewhere. But in the meantime, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr. The new $12.5 million elevated bike path in Rio de Janeiro came crashing down into the rocks and sea below this week, killing at least two people. A massive wave lifted a 150-foot section of the bike path and took it down roughly three months after officials opened the path and hailed it as a legacy project, a top legacy project of the Rio Olympics. The problem is that this exceptional force when the wave raised the bridge was not included in the project. I think it was a design flaw. Antonio Eulalio a civil engineer and advisor to the Rio de Janeiro Regional Council of Engineering said to Global News, quoted it by popular mechanics in this country. He highlighted the stress caused when the wave came from below, twisting the bike path upwards. Accusations of corruption and shoddy engineering flared up immediately due to the ongoing scandal in the Brazilian construction industry for the past several years. Media headlines have been filled with details about multi-million dollar bribes, kickbacks, and political corruption involving government-financed infrastructure projects, like those legacy projects for the Olympic Games. It's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. And now news of the godly. Sadistic nuns, think of it, at a notorious Queensland, Australia orphanage dished out abuse in a toxic environment that festered due in part to inadequate government scrutiny, supervision, and training. That's according to an Australian royal commission looking into child sexual abuse. It last year examined cruel treatment of 13 former residents of St. Joseph's Orphanage, not connected to the aspirin, uh, which was operated by the Sisters of Mercy between 1940 and 1975. The men and women aged from their 50s to their 80s recalled abuse at the school ranging from public floggings and being walked on by high heels to being made to drape urine-soaked sheets over their heads. Commissioners explored the responses of the Sisters of Mercy as well as the Catholic Diocese and the Queensland government to complaints which often fell on deaf ears, not to be confused with deaf boys. The commission found punishment administered by some nuns was, quote, cruel and excessive against regulations in place at the time. Some victims didn't report sexual abuse because they had little or no opportunity to speak with department inspectors. We're also satisfied, said the commissioners, that children who did complain of physical and or sexual abuse to a department inspector, a sister, a priest, or a priest or police, were not believed and or were often punished by the sister or priest 
for reporting the abuse. Well, yeah, you got to punish him. Otherwise, uh, and also, news of the godly, a Roman Catholic diocese in southern India said this week it consulted with the Vatican before it reinstated a priest who last year pleaded guilty to the sexual abuse of a minor in the good old United States. The suspension of the priest, Father Joseph Jayapal, 61, was lifted by the bishop of the diocese of Utakamund in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu earlier this year. I said that's according to a spokesman for the diocese. Father Jayapal was serving uh, in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota. In 2004, he returned to India. A year later, two years later, criminal charges were filed against him in the U.S., accusing him of sexually abusing a girl between 2004 and 2005. He was suspended from the Indian Diocese in 2010, arrested a couple years later, extradited to Minnesota. In May 2015, he pleaded guilty to criminal sexual conduct, released from jail after three years and four months, deported from the U.S., He's now living in the residential premises of the diocese. Meantime, another woman alleges she too was sexually abused by him in 2004. Uh, he has no responsibilities whatsoever in the current diocese. When asked if he was prevented from having contact with children, the spokesman said, quote, it is not a jail, unquote. He didn't comment on why Father Jayapul was reinstated. He's not available for comment. His public defender in the United States couldn't be reached. The bishop lifted the suspension after consulting with higher officials, according to the spokesman. There was guidance of the Vatican, he said, without revealing whether it approved the reinstatement. The Vatican spokesman declined to comment as well. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of Hello, Welcome to the Show. Look up in the air, it's your guitar 
Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. First to Pennsylvania, where Range Resources Executive Terry Bossert, he's a senior executive at the natural gas driller, apologized for suggesting the company tries to avoid putting its wells near big houses where residents may have the financial means to challenge them. The comment was made by Bossert, the vice president for legislative and regulatory affairs at a legal forum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, earlier this month reported first by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Let me apologize as my attempt to interject dry sarcasm was clearly a mistake, he said in a statement released this week. We always work hard to create the biggest buffer between our operation and all residents. An attorney who attended the lawyer's forum and questioned Bossert shortly after he made the comment said, everyone who was there knows it wasn't a joke. Well, humor is in the eye of the behearer, after all. The Bishop of Rockingham in Australia has restated his apology to the victims of abuse at the notorious Queensland Orphanage, St. Joseph's. No relation to the orf- uh, to the aspirin. That's the story we covered earlier. Now, there's an apology covering the story that was covered. Dayline Warsaw Catholic Church authorities in eastern Poland denounced nationalist views this week and apologized after a radical extreme right organization held a mass in a regional cathedral. Father Andrzej Debski, spokesman for the church authorities in Bialystok, said the apology came after believers complained that a mass was held in Bialystok Cathedral for the extreme right national radical camp. Founded in 1934, the ONR was built on Italian fascism and has promoted anti-Semitic ideas. In Poland, really? The Bialystok Curie apologized to all who felt hurt by the behavior of ONR members in Bialystok Cathedral, said a statement on its website. The Curia assures the church in Bialystok region is non-party and nationalism is alien to it. The cathedral rector consented to the mass, led by a priest of the organization's choice, but he failed to seek the approval of his superiors. UC Davis Chancellor Linda P.B. Katehi apologized Thursday for mistakes she and her staff made during her seven-year tenure, committed to setting up oversight committees to avoid further missteps. There will be mistakes. There will be controversy. There will be critiques. I have to tell you, she said, I'm a human being. You know I've made mistakes, and I probably will make more. And what I can promise you is I'm not that I will not make another mistake. I will promise you that I will try not to. This is after a series of articles in the Sacramento Bee described her paid positions on corporate boards and the university's hiring of consultants to cleanse the school's online reputation after the 2011 pepper spraying of nonviolent protesting students. 
She says she has no plans to leave despite calls from some lawmakers to resign. She said the proposal to uh, clean up the uh, internet from mentions of the pepper spray cop incident, uh, well, her mistake was allowing a contract with inappropriate language to exist. I take responsibility for that. We never, never intended to delete. You cannot, first of all, do that. But we never intended to erase history. UC Davis and the pepper spray is a historic event that will remain with us, but it should not define the institution. And if I wanted to fix my own reputation, she said, I would have done it privately. Unquote. The pepper spray chancellor. Just two weeks after the Chicago Blackhawks announced a partnership with the You Can Play Project, which works to promote the inclusion of LGBT athletes in sports, two members of the team appeared in a video. But Blackhawks forward Andrew Shaw must not have gotten the message. He was suspended by the NHL from the Blues-Blackhawks playoff series after he was caught on video twice directing a homophobic slur at the referees after being called for a penalty late in Game 4. I want to apologize for my actions, he said, appearing near tears at times. I have no excuses for anything. I want to apologize to the gay and lesbian community. That's not the type of guy I am. This is hard for me. I saw the video last night and I had a rough time sleeping. My emotions, I let my emotions get the better of me. I'll never use that word again. That's for sure. Said the senior executive vice president of hockey operations at the NHL, the emotion of the moment cannot and will not be a mitigating factor for the conduct that is expected of an NHL player. Reminder, they're talking about hockey. BuzzFeed has apologized for a video it published last week that featured black people asking questions that seemed to generalize the black experience. We've heard your concerns about last week's video. We made a mistake. We want to get better at earning the trust of our black audience, the site tweeted. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. This is Le Show, and what I know about economics can go in uh, uh, the tip jar of uh, any nightclub you might want to patronize, but it becomes increasingly important as we uh, rattle through what's uh, purported to be the recovery from the Great Recession. And uh, my guest today is I've invited because he has pointed out in a, a recent book something that I... Uh, had no idea uh, about, and I, I wanted him to explain it to me and uh, to us. You may recognize his name, uh, James Galbraith, Dr. James Galbraith, who's a professor of economics at the University of Texas in Austin uh, at the Department of Government. He's also a senior scholar with the Levy. Is it Levy or Levy? Levy. Levy Economics Institute of Bard College and uh, part of the executive committee of the World Economics Association. Dr. Galbraith in Austin, Texas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let me uh, start at the basics. Um, economics purports to be a science, does it? Uh, not if you know it uh, <laughs> as intimately as I do. <laughs> Who was it that uh, gave it the sobriquet, the dismal science? I forgot. Macaulay in the 19th um, 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 Macaulay, McCulloch, 19th century. It's uh, it, it, around the time of David Ricardo it got that designation uh, because of the the views of Thomas Robert Malthus, uh, which held that uh, uh, the population would always uh, exceed the food supply or run up against the food supply and the subsistence of labor could never be improved. Um, and that was, uh, that was the uh, message of classical political economy in the first half of the 19th century. Sounds pretty dismal indeed. So now, one of the things that science 
purports to be able to do is to uh, do experiments that can be replicated, that can explain, and also have predictive power. And economists use, um, for part of that purpose, a model. That is true. What is a model? A model is a, a mathematical representation of the uh, of the functioning of the economy. So it's a set of equations that... Uh, Purport to predict particular uh, particular variables, usually variables that are recorded statistically in the national income and product accounts, like consumption, investment, government spending, exports, imports, the interest rate, the exchange rate, things of that nature. And the and the reason they use models is because to try to uh, get your arms around the entire economy uh, is too hard. <laughs> No, it's that the individual components uh, uh, can be thought of as having uh, mathematical relationships to each other. Their behavior is governed by by rules, which uh, work some of the time and not all of the time, uh, but that they have general general regularities, which uh, economists arguably have observed uh, in the data. So they write those into a, a structural model, a model of the economy, and put them together in such a way as they hope to get a reasonably consistent uh, forecast of what's going to happen going forward. So the, the, one of the basic uses, if not the, the primary use of, of economic models, is for forecasting and, and predictive power, correct? It's, they certainly are used for forecasting, yes. Now, one of the chief users of models in, in terms of public life in this country is the Congressional Budget Office. Is that fair to say? It's uh, certainly an important part of what they do, yes. And they use models in order to, uh, as they call it in Washington, score uh, various policy options to to decide if you did this, it would have this effect on uh, in, uh, uh, tax income, jobs, that sort of thing, guys? Well, to put it a little more precisely, what the CBO does is to calculate a baseline model for the performance of the economy so that when they score different pieces of legislation, they're doing so in a consistent way. And that's a, certainly a perfectly legitimate thing. But the issue then is whether that baseline model is really a realistic forecast of what is going to happen. And there's a certain, they publish it. It looks, it looks like a forecast to anybody with an untrained eye. And But uh, whether it should be truly treated as such uh, is, 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 is the question. So what can happen? I, I could anticipate you just a bit to a, a forecasting model. Mm-hmm. Basically, there, there are two kinds of problems. One, one is that the model is necessarily calibrated on past behavior. And that is because that is history is the only guide you have. So there's an implicit assumption in the forecasting model uh, that the future is going to resemble the past. Uh, and if the future doesn't resemble the past, you're in trouble. Uh, and a major reason why the future may not resemble the past is that some factor, some element which was in the background, let's say, of the model and was not perhaps explicitly accounted for because it did not appear to be sufficiently important, suddenly becomes important. So the world changes in some significant way. And this is something which a, a modeling approach um, is simply always going to miss because the modeler is not trained to have the broad range of, 
uh, understanding of the wider world to be able to identify significant developments at the, when they occur. They'll, they will be identified in retrospect, but at that point, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, it's far too late to use them for forecasting purposes. So that's the situation that I suggest actually happened. Really over the turn for the United States over the turn of the of, of the millennium around 2000 uh, for the rest of the world in many ways much earlier than that in the 1970s well is this a, a is this a uh, occupational hazard of being a modeler that you can't anticipate these uh, or is this just human nature that uh, we we in the same way that we look at a, a graph and assume that it will continue in a linear fashion in, uh, forever that's just the way human brains work uh, it's the way um, human brains of a certain sort work. <laughs> it's not the way all human brains work. Uh, but uh, it is, in fact, a, an occupational hazard of a bureaucratized inter- enterprise, which modern economics has become an uh, enterprise of teams and of, of, of intellectual conformity, a uh, standard set by groups to which everybody tries to uh, uh, to uh, to conform and their professional advancement is determined by just how conformist they are. Uh, so you have a um, a community which is uh, self governed by a form of groupthink. Um, and that is, in a sense, it's not necessarily a bad thing in itself. Uh, but when the conditions change, that community is going to be wrong en masse, and it's not going to provide any kind of internal checks or balances uh, to its way of thinking that will enable it to be alert to the fact that it's made a catastrophic mistake. Well, that was going to be my next question, because theoretically, mm-hmm. uh, in a science, uh, one could have a fairly, uh, not infinite, but a fairly large number of, of models that would compete uh, for uh, predictive power and the one that uh, had the most predictive power would uh, ultimately come out ahead. But you're suggesting that uh, there's more of a monopolistic setup to uh, economic modeling in this in this world. Well, in, in I think the problem that I've, that I've stated is a generic one. But in economics in particular, the field remains uh, quite contested. Uh, but the dominant community has done an exceptionally good job of walling off uh, itself from c- critical perspectives and for the last half century or so. Something that was not true, actually, in the 40s and 50s and 60s when uh, major departments were full of highly divergent uh, figures with creative approaches. Um, that was certainly the environment that I grew up in and was aware of in the when I was much younger. Uh, but from the 1970s to 1980s onward, it has become uh, a highly hierarchical uh, profession where advancement depends entirely upon being able to publish in a certain very small set of uh, economic journals whose uh, publishing decisions are governed by very narrowly chosen uh, uh, boards, and they basically exclude anything that they deem to be non-mainstream. So the non-mainstream stuff is out there. It gets published in other journals. Those journals have no impact on on being able to come into the more influential positions in the departments uh, and in the profession. And the result of that is that people like well, people I like to associate and consider to be uh, my uh, intellectual colleagues uh, tend to be scattered around the landscape in a way which greatly diminishes their ability to influence the course of the, of the debate. 
Well, let's get back to the Congressional Budget Office. It, mm-hmm. it is supposedly nonpartisan. It is supposedly the objective uh, source of information for legislators considering uh, different policy options. How did its economic model perform during the time? Uh, did, did it predict the great uh, meltdown of 2007, 2008? No, it did not predict the meltdown. Uh, the uh, But more important than even that was that when the meltdown occurred, the Congressional Budget Office's model had built into it uh, and a particular assumption which had become uh, mainstream dogma over the previous 30 years. And that assumption was that the economy reverts to its previous trend, recovers to its previous trend in a way that is a f- fundamentally automatic. Uh, that is to say, uh, there is something called a natural rate of unemployment uh, and something called a labor market. Uh, and the labor market adjusts after you ha- give it a shock and people are out of work. Real wages fall. And employers come back in and rehire everybody once the, uh, the labor force is competitive again. It's the basic mechanism that's uh, at least the underlying thought behind the mechanism that's built into this model. Uh, And the result of having that in the model means that the Congressional Budget Office from the beginning in 2008, 2009, was predicting that there would be a relatively rapid recovery and a return to the previous trend by 2012, 2013. Uh, And, of course, it didn't happen. And the fact that it didn't happen tells you that that assumption uh, was a deeply unfounded assumption. Some of us have been arguing that for 30 years, uh, but once you build something into a computer model, the people who are operating that model, I think, are barely conscious of the theoretical dogmas that they've become captured by. It becomes sort of consensus reality then. Uh, as far as they're concerned, no, I don't think these people are, 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 are ideologues. I think they're basically mechanics, <laughs> uh, but they are mechanics who have not really got a uh, critical grip on the engine that they are working with. They don't really know how it, how it was designed. Uh, and so they believe it to have certain properties, which in fact it can't have, which contrary to, uh, contrary in some ways to the laws of physics. Uh, so, uh, but they have a kind of metaphysical belief uh, in the self-correcting properties of the economy. Okay, and and so now we're past the great meltdown and facing policy choices about how to either engineer or or encourage a recovery. And now this model does what? Well, the model basically says that uh, the economy, as I said before, will recover on its own. But, of course, there will be a period when it's operating below uh, its potential. Uh, And that became the way in which mainstream economists framed the debate over whether one should stimulate the economy or not. Some of them argued that there should not be a stimulus, just wait for things to recover on their own. Uh, Some of them argued that there should be, uh, and this was the position taken by the leading economists who came in with the uh, with President Obama, Christina Romer, for example, his chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, that there should be a stimulus, uh, that there should be an effort to speed up the rate of recovery, but that at the best, even if you did a very big one, it would simply move forward the date uh, at which you got full recovery by a matter of months. So even the administration's own forecast about what would happen, which was prepared in early 2009, held that the, uh, you know, their own program would generate a recovery that would be complete six months earlier uh, than it would be completed anyway. And that 
gives you an idea of how locked in they were to the, to the notion that the economy was self-repairing. If you don't believe the economy is self-repairing, you might argue uh, that the package is absolutely necessary in order to get a recovery at all. And if you don't, don't pass a series of reforms, you're going to end up in, in stagnation or even in further economic decline. But they didn't actually make that argument. They said, yeah, the economy is recovering on its own, but we can speed it up and help it a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw a couple of really ignorant questions at you regarding this. We're in a time of, of uh, uh, almost, if not really, negative interest rates. Had there been a period like that in the, in the historical period encompassed by the model? Um, no, that's an interesting question. Uh, and I think the answer to that is... Um, not really. There was a period of very low interest rates right after uh, 2001. But uh, the period that was relevant was the period of the late 1930s when the, um, when the federal funds rate, when the, when the interest rate that the government set was practically zero, as mm. it has been uh, in recent years, uh, and certainly since the crisis in 2007. So uh, that period is one before uh, the time when there was uh, a uh, established body of, of, of uh, national income accounting data, and therefore it is not counted for uh, in these models. But if you go back to the histories of that period, then people understood it. Uh, what they believed at the time, and I believe they were right, was that uh, a zero interest rate and uh, a particular attitude people had toward holding money, holding reserves in an environment of fear meant that there was no way that the economy was going to recover on its own. And that would argue for a, a, a to use a almost Dick Cheney word, a robust stimulus of the economy. Well, it would argue for that, that the recovery that did occur uh, and that put the economy in the, by 1950 on the track that carried it through 25 years of growth uh, would not have happened without the New Deal and the Second World War. And the alternative view uh, is equivalent to saying that even though we were in the greatest depression in world history in 1933, that 1950 would have been essentially what what it was, even if there had been no New Deal and no no Second World War, which when you put it in those terms and you understand the historical magnitude of what the New Deal did and, and what the Second World War uh, did to the economy is, is, is fundamentally a preposterous view. It just completely ignores the fact that when you make First of all, physical investments, you change the underlying conditions for the production of the economy. And even more important than that, when you provide people with work and get them doing useful things, they become disciplined, effective, productive uh, members of the, of the economic society, which if you leave them on the dole, they don't become. So the fact that that jobs were available in the 1930s and the New Deal agencies and the fact uh, that they were massively available during the Second World War meant that after the war, you had a very different population, workforce, uh, and approach to, um, let's say, the capitalist system uh, than you would have had if those things hadn't happened. Another sort of uh, almost naive question. We're told by certain political actors uh, fairly frequently in no uncertain terms, government doesn't create jobs. 
I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I could go back again to just to do a little list of, of, of what happened uh, beginning in 1933. The government... Uh, paved um, uh, 700,000 miles of roads. They built 1,000 airfields. They rebuilt every rural school in the country. They built every courthouse in the country. They built the Lincoln Tunnel, and they built the Triborough Bridge, and they built uh, Timberline Lodge on Mount Hood, where I stayed a few days ago. They built the tower at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, they built <laughs> practically you know, everything you find uh, from that period uh, was built by uh, by government money uh, and uh, under the supervision uh, of government of, of federal agencies. So, uh, oh, they built battleships too, by the way, mm-hmm. and and, uh, uh, and aircraft carriers, which were crucial to the victory at Midway in the Second World. War. So this is uh, the notion that government doesn't do things. Government does a great many things in our society and uh, has continued to do so, obviously, in the period of our lifetimes and continues to do so today. It's an integral part of our economic life. There is an important role for the private sector, but uh, uh, the, the public sector and the regulatory mechanisms that we have are, in fact, very important to distinguishing us from a state of, uh, of underdevelopment and uh, economic disorder, which you find in many other parts of the world. So if this uh, model is uh, so defective in terms of, of uh, predicting shocks or unusual uh, events in the economy and, and in terms of uh, prescribing what will happen under various policy options, given that uh, weakness, how do we get out of this? Well, I think you have to approach the matter with an open mind, uh, and that is what the models attempt to foreclose. Uh, I'll tell you a a little story. Uh, In the depth of the crisis, which would have been late November, maybe early December of 2008, after the election, I met with uh, incoming uh, transition official, Jason Furman, who's now the chair, of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, and it was just to discuss strategy. And his first question was, what's your number? Meaning, what did I estimate would be necessary uh, to get out of the uh, uh, of the crisis? Uh, and numbers for the stimulus package were mm-hmm. going around, it was mm-hmm. $400 billion a year or whatever it was. Uh, and I was baffled by that question at first uh, because it didn't occur to me that it was sensible to calculate a number. My own approach, my preferred approach, was to say this is a crisis of unprecedented proportions. We cannot know how severe it will be. We cannot know what the psychological reaction will be, what the international repercussions will be. So what you need to do is to throw at it everything you have. You need to do whatever it takes and take an open-ended approach and be prepared to spend as much as is required until you see the results that you want to see. And I adjusted that view because I realized that in order to get into the conversation at all, I had to have a number. Uh, and uh, uh, when we started talking about that, Jason said, well, we're counting on you to come up with a big number. And the, uh, that was a strategic approach, which was sensible. Uh, my job was to uh, to to press the envelope and, mm-hmm. and make... You were to uh, be the outlier. The, 
I was to be the outlier, which I, a role I'm happy to play. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, in, but it enabled more cautious people with, with who were actually slated to take responsible positions uh, to move their position uh, closer to where they felt it might, it, it, they might possibly be in a zone that would work. Um, but as I say, the problem to begin with was the notion that you had to estimate the number that you needed and calculate your policy on the basis of that. Roosevelt didn't do that in 1933. He honestly didn't. He simply said, we're going to try an experiment and we're going to, if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And they appropriated a big number and they started spending it. And, uh, you know, gradually they began to see uh, the effect on 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 economic activity, even though they couldn't measure that either. There was no 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 GDP growth accounts at the time, but they could tell uh, that they were having an impact. And of course, by 1936, it was clear they'd had an enormous impact, which is why Roosevelt got reelected with 46 states. You also say in in your book that the, partly because of political pressure, partly because of the uh, limits of what people felt was necessary. The stimulus money that did go out was focused on so-called shovel-ready projects, uh, and that had a, 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 an impact on what we could uh, get out of this recovery. Yeah, there was an effort to focus it on shovel-ready projects. Uh, I think it's a good thing that that was not entirely the case. A lot of money was spent, for example, on green energy that was very useful. Uh, but the focus to the extent that it occurred on things that were short-term and temporary was in line with this um, uh, methodological predilection, with this, uh, with this preconception of how the system would work. Uh, and again, if you take a more open-ended approach and you realize that you've got a problem whose dimensions you don't know, then you would deal with it in a more constructive way for the long term. You would sit down and say, okay, what are the most important problems we have to solve? How can we create institutions that will effectively tackle those problems? Let's let's talk about our energy and environmental problem, about uh, the greenhouse gas issue, uh, and uh, and we'll 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 put the resources that we need into a long-term and even permanent uh, approach to dealing with uh, with with the, these crucial questions. Uh, and they didn't do that. Uh, they they are operating on the assumption that the intervention could be time limited, uh, that the economy would be back on its own, it would be back to the previous status quo uh, after five or six years, uh, and that again means that uh, we missed a big opportunity when uh, we could have been dealing with not only the immediate economic problem but also uh, potentially catastrophic longer-term issues that we absolutely have to address, but which in the current political environment there's absolutely no chance of addressing. Are we at this point in time back to where we were before the meltdown? No. Uh, the uh, uh, level of employment uh, in the population has barely changed since the uh, trough of the crisis. Uh, we have had job growth, but it's only been basically in line with population growth. There's a much smaller share of the population is now active than it was then. About half of those have retired, in my understanding, and another half have, uh, uh, of those who have left have retired, and another half have simply dropped out of the labor force because they don't think that the jobs will be available. No question, we are in a fundamentally different place uh, not only than we were, but then the models predicted that we would be. 
going back to that moment in time uh, when you were called in, uh, there's been reporting on uh, those discussions inside the Obama administration, which indicate that uh, it, it was made very clear to participants in those conversations that there was a political ceiling on the number that actually they were going to put forward, that uh, uh, anything above that was absurd and a, a political non-starter. Was that your uh, sense of what was going on there? Well, I think that's been accurately reported. The the, the phrase that Larry Summers used to uh, uh, Christina Romer was extraplanetary. <laughs> Larry's been very clear uh, uh, to me personally, and I think in other forum, that he was personally in favor of a larger number and pressed for it internally. Uh, the forces that were actually opposed to that were associated, for example, with the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, Timothy Geithner. Uh, but Larry uh, was nevertheless aware uh, that there was there were political constraints that uh, um, uh, that and it was a judgment that uh, they didn't have the um, uh, let's say the political momentum that would en- have enabled them to carry let's say a trillion dollar program uh, and so they had to keep it within the range of what they could sell um, and that. Now, and that's there. There are understandable reasons why that was the case. The crisis was only a few months old when Barack Obama took office, uh, whereas when Roosevelt took office, it had been going for four years, and the entire fabric of the country was unraveling. Also, there, you know, when Roosevelt took office, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia was only what sixteen years old, mm-hmm. seventeen years old. So that uh, uh, there was there was a, a, a concrete alternative emerging in the world to the capitalist system. Uh, and certainly it's in 2009, uh, Americans were not conditioned to see that kind of a threat mm-hmm. uh, to their way of life. So for various reasons, the Obama administration was not close to being in the political position that Franklin Roosevelt had been in. Now we're here. And uh, 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 I, I would ask you, first of all, uh, I mean, I, I look around, I see these, these stories about uh, the, the either impending or current slowdown in China, the, the, stas- the stasis in Europe. Um, and uh, Depression are, in Europe. Yeah. yeah. And are we, are we heading towards a rerun of 2007, 2008? Well, 2007, 2008 were triggered by a massive financial collapse and panic. Uh, and it's the hard. Well, at that time, uh, people who certainly knew that the real estate market were saying very loudly that this was going to occur because of a massive wave of fraud uh, in the, uh, particularly in subprime mortgages, but in the, and in the the um, marketing of those mortgages onto the world market. Uh, is there something similar going on in the world today? Uh, that's a little hard for me to judge. Uh, I would say the major financial risks at the moment stem from international instabilities. Uh, that is to say, money flooding back out of uh, Latin America and other parts of the world where it has gone to search for yield uh, as the United States moves toward uh, higher interest rates uh, and as that part of the world suffers currency devaluations and crises. And China, above all, could be uh, a, um, a major source of financial instability, but uh, it's a little hard from the outside to judge the extent to which 
that's the case, and nobody knows where the derivative exposure of major banks may be at this point. We know there's a lot of it out there, but we don't know specifically who holds it or what the uh, what the risks are because they're not required to report that. So one has to remain, this is for the financial authorities to be on top of, and it's hard to speculate from the outside. Is the economy slowing down? Yes, it is. Uh, and is it slowing down because international forces are bearing on it? Yes, that's true. There was a news report, I think this morning, uh, to that effect, that this was the, the most recent data the external sector was weighing on the American economy. Uh, what is the appropriate response to that? Uh, I think one has to be very, this is a point where we really do need to think clearly and importantly. Many people saying the economy is slowing down, that means the budget deficit is going to be bigger, we have to tighten our belts uh, at the governmental level. That's exactly the wrong response. The right response is to say the economy is slowing down, more people are at risk, we have to make sure that their insurance and their sa safety net is stronger, uh, not weaker than it was before. And that means strengthening programs like Social Security, extending health insurance, it means making uh, public services like public education in particular, university education more accessible. So that's the, th that, that is, uh, in, to my mind, the fundamentally important debate is how you respond to difficult conditions. Do you do so in a way which throws a vast part of the population onto, effectively onto the trash pile and says, okay, there are no opportunities for you and no, uh, and you have to uh, basically live out your life in, in precarity or destitution? Or do we say we are going to provide, continue to provide uh, the, the basic opportunities and services uh, so that people have a chance to make their own decisions and to, uh, first of all, lead lives in comfort and dignity, but beyond that, to have the ability to think for themselves about how they're going to um, make themselves part, uh, functioning and effective part of economic life. And as we look to this moment where there might be a slowdown or there is a slowdown and there might be something more wrenching in our future, has the dominant econ economic model now taken into account uh, the events of 2000, 2000, uh, 2007, 2008, are those part of the historical record that's now encapsulated in the uh, mainstream model or, or not? There has been a little bit of adjustment of trends, for example, to take account of the experience of the last seven years. But there's been no real learning about what is behind the change of trend. Uh, there's been no underlying rethinking. And in order to have rethinking in the mainstream, the mainstream has to admit people who think differently. Uh, there has not been, for example, to my almost certain knowledge, a single senior appointment in any so-called mainstream economics department since the crisis that has gone to someone who was right about what was going wrong beforehand. Not one. None of these departments have said, gee, you know, we really need to reach out to people who were previously considered not mainstream and appoint them to senior positions. It's the most unbelievably uh, circle the wagons attitude uh, in the profession. And it's extremely difficult, uh, even in 
you know, uh, schools like mine, public policy schools or other units that have some independence uh, to get economists to admit the need for diversity and choice and uh, uh, a wide-ranging thinking about economic problems. So this is a profession of um, ostriches with their heads firmly buried in the sand uh, and uh, of people who continue to think that only their established colleagues are worth quoting, worth citing, worth referring to. Uh, so an idea does not penetrate into this until someone who is already inside picks it up from the outside. Uh, and that happens from time to time. And I congratulate people like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman who pick up these ideas from time to time. Uh, but uh, you know, frankly, that's not a substitute for actually having the people who had those ideas brought in and uh, taking a deep breath and listening to the fact that uh, that there were people around who uh, who understood these issues uh, dec years and decades before uh, the crisis actually happened. Now, you've mentioned two names that are uh, in uh, somewhat uh, contention in a in a very contemporary. Uh, controversy right now, uh, Krugman and Christina Romer, there was a, uh, a, an analysis of Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, economic proposals by a, a certain uh, Dr. Friedman. Uh, that Jerry was, Friedman. Jerry, and it was responded to with uh, some force and vigor by, uh, among others, uh, Romer and Krugman. And I think you weighed in on this. I did. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, what happened there was that uh, four former chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors, two of them under Clinton, two under Obama, did a joint letter of a few paragraphs, uh, which pounced on uh, Gerald Friedman's study of the economic effects of the Sanders program. And Friedman had looked at the program. It's a big program. He ran it through a model, which he carefully specified, basically, as I described earlier, rules of thumb. Uh, and he said, you put a big program into a, this kind of a model, you get a big result, that is to say, strong growth that goes on for quite a long period of time. What he got from the four senior figures uh, was a pompous note that said, uh, we are the guardians of what is rigorous in economics and your study isn't any good. Uh, and um, I wrote them saying, gee, I appreciate your your uh, your appreciation for rigor, um, but uh, I looked for the rigorous rebuttal and I didn't see a line that actually analyzed what Gerald Friedman said. And I have to say, I know Jerry Friedman, never met him. I still haven't met him. We've corresponded quite a bit in this last few weeks. But uh, uh, they, uh, I thought this was a when, – when you have people who have access to the New York Times and are going to get picked up by Paul Krugman, uh, going after someone who's simply conducted a uh, – uh, an written an analytical paper, uh, that is not kosher. Uh, they need to, to, uh, to, to state exactly what it was that motivated them to hold this view, and not simply that they didn't like. Uh, it can't simply be that the view uh, tended to support the program of a presidential candidate whom they're not backing. Uh, which seemed to definitely be the case. And whom, as I understand it, Friedman isn't backing either. He's a Clinton. Well, Friedman wasn't backing. I, right. I, I strongly suspect he's uh, 
become considerably more sympathetic to wow. the Sanders camp since since uh, people who were on Bernie Sanders' side, uh, you know, came to uh, to defend him, and while the Hillary Clinton people were jumping down his throat, even though he was a contributor to Secretary Clinton. So, uh, this is a uh, uh, this was just a piece of professional bad behavior of rank pulling, uh, and uh, I felt that as a former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, which is the counterpart to the Council of Economic Advisers in the Congress, that I had at least a degree of standing that would permit me to uh, write a, a letter chiding my colleagues for uh, for bad behavior, which I did. Uh, ultimately, Christina Romer and her husband did produce a paper in which, interestingly enough, they stated their uh, what their line of theoretical difference with Jerry Friedman was. And it comes down to exactly the point we were talking earlier, which is that the Romers believe uh, that the economy would recover anyway. Uh, and there was a 2% underlying rate, rate of growth. And the, once you took that into account and built that into your model, uh, then the, uh, uh, the effect of a, of a stimulus package is going to be much less because you've got 2% that's going to happen anyway. But if you take that model seriously, it comes back to the reductio ad absurdum that uh, the idea that the New Deal and, the world, and world War II were, did not contribute to the prosperity of the 1950s and 1960s, which uh, is totally a historical and implausible position. Uh, so I, I, that debate can go on, but once one has actually uh, obliged the mainstream uh, Economists to state what their theoretical presumptions are. You can make a judgment about it, and you can, can see that it's it would not be persuasive to any ordinary, uh, sensible person who looks at it with uh, uh, with uh, unbiased eyes. I want to. I think this is a part of the uh, question here, but I I I wanted to ask this question anyway, uh, just because it's a technical term that I think gets thrown around a lot, and we don't necessarily understand it. The multiplier, uh, the effect of, of let's say, uh, a dollar of government spending on the economy. And, and it, w there's an argument about what the multiplier is, isn't there? Yeah. And this was the uh, essence of the, um, of the dispute was over the, what value to place there and, and for how long. Uh, the multiplier is... Uh, derives from the fact that when the government spends $1,000, that's not the end of the economic consequences of that expenditure because they pay that to someone, it becomes income, and that person then spends a certain fraction, let's say $800 or $750, on their own uh, consumption needs, and the people who receive that money spend a certain fraction again. So when you add up all of the repercussions, you get a number that is larger than $1,000. Uh, and... Uh, when you take out taxes and imports, uh, characteristically, uh, the number is between one and two. If you take the Romer analysis, however, in which things are going to happen anyway, the number shrinks down towards zero uh, and even becomes negative after a certain period of time uh, because they build in an effect of the burden, so-called burden of the government debt, which they believe crowds out private investment five or ten years down the road. Uh, so there are even models which say the economy is worse off now uh, than uh, it would have been if the stimulus had not have been enacted in 2009. And that, again, is extremely hard for a sensible person to believe, particularly when the interest rates haven't gone up at all. And it's clear that they're not controlled by the demand for investment, but rather by what Janet Yellen and her colleagues decide on any given uh, six-week interval at the Federal Open Market Committee. 
Um, finally, because uh, I know your time is limited and we have limited airtime, but I'm just curious. Uh, That's I, a shame. I'm enjoying this. I am. I am as well. <laughs> um, but I want to ask a, a, a more personal question. Uh, I know how fraught it is for a lot of people in the entertainment and arts world to pursue the same career path as especially their dad. Uh, was it fraught for you to follow in the footsteps of, of your famous father? There's a certain tradition in economics of doing this, uh, uh, which I'm, uh, I won't but name the people. Well, Keynes and John Stuart mm-hmm. Mill both followed their fathers. Uh, but now for me, uh, first of all, it was something that fascinated me at a certain stage in my life, probably more then than it does now. Uh, and secondly, I always felt that I was working in an extremely honorable tradition uh, by uh, uh, aligning myself very much with uh, with with my father's point of view. He took uh, a uh, an unconventional argument uh, that he was making uh, that was highly original to him that corresponded to the reality of his day, uh, and uh, he defended that I think with considerable eloquence and. Very great success, actually. So uh, I suppose the fraught element here is that it's, uh, you know, there may be something cleansing about having a youthful or an adolescent rebellion against your father uh, and going off in your own direction. And I maybe simply have a placid soul and never did that. But uh, I haven't regretted it. I'm I'm as... uh, um, Content to be in my tradition as uh, I could be. I'll tell a little story. I ran into a descendant of a friend of mine, a professor of economics, who was a descendant of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, and who bore Roosevelt's name. And he made a comment to me at once about uh, how it was difficult to have names like his, like ours. And I said, oh, what the hell are you talking about? And he looked at me with some surprise. And I said, you know, think about it. It's not Bush. He said, <laughs> Ah, I feel much better already. <laughs> and you're sitting in Texas saying that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, there it is. It is uh, I, I've always said in, uh, that I, I was a great follower of George W. Bush's. I followed him to Andover, to Harvard, and Yale. And then I followed him to Texas, and then I stopped following him. <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Galbraith, for uh, explaining... Um, a lot of this and doing so in a way that uh, clarifies for a lot of us what's going on. Uh, really appreciate it. And the name of the book that I was referring to is? The End of Normal. And I have two new books. Uh, the, a book called Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is just out from Oxford, and a book uh, called uh, Welcome to the Poisoned Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe, which will be out in a few weeks from Yale. Well, hopefully we can have you back and talk about that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans, Scott Crisp at 48 Windows in Santa Monica, and Jake Perlman and Todd Callahan at KUT Austin, Texas for help with today's broadcast. The email address for the program and a playlist of the music available at harryshearer.com.
The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of The Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Raleigh. Raleigh.